Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuhu from the podcast team at Qalam. We wanted to wish you a very blessed Ramadan. This month you can expect daily uploads that will include reflections, khatiras and khutbas all from our new campus Alhamdulillah. If you benefit from this content, please give generously at supportqalam.com. 100% of your donations goes towards the means of providing accessible Islamic knowledge to people around the world. Jazakumullah khairan for listening. Where we gather together for some reflection and uh, remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and also for some prayer and worship, alhamdulillah. And to have some kind of, um, you know, organization to our reflections and our discussions here every night, we've chosen a particular theme. And the theme that we have chosen that we focused on is titled Forgiven, where we talk about these stories of forgiveness from the life of the Prophet ﷺ, from the lives of the companions of the Prophet ﷺ, and occasionally we also highlight some of the uh, remarkable moments from the lives of the righteous people of the past. Uh, so alhamdulillah, tonight we are going to be talking about, at the very least, um, two really fascinating individuals who really truly represent um, kind of what we refer to a lot of times as a complete 180, right? Somebody just completely turning things around and going in the complete opposite direction from where they were headed. Um, and we're going to start off actually and I'll ask Ustad to kind of get us started. We're going to start off by talking about Ikrima uh, ibn Abi Jahl. Um, so we're going to start off by talking about an individual named Ikrima, who is the son of Abu Jahl. So <clears throat> during the year in which the Prophet Sallallahu uh, opened Mecca, during the year of Fatih Mecca, there were uh, numerous... Uh, you know, sort of monumental transitions in the lives of many of the people of Quraysh. And Ikrima, who was the son of Abu Jahl, many of you probably obviously can think of that context and that individual, Ikrima was one of those individuals. But it was not something that was as, you know, last night we talked about the story of Khalid and Amr, it wasn't as... Uh, you know, it wasn't as much of a super warm initial process that we talked about. For example, Khalid was the one who sort of took the first step. And even though Amr ibn As was initially hesitant and after he met with Najashi and, you know, got, uh, you know, his, his uh, reminder physically, he went to the Prophet ﷺ. But Ikrimah was a little bit different. Uh, Ikrimah, after the Fatih of Mecca, he said to himself, that there is no way that I will ever find peace on the earth now that the Prophet ﷺ has opened up Mecca. That there is no way that I'll ever be able to find any sort of peace. And so he did something very drastic. He took you know, a riding animal and he rode all the way to the coast of the peninsula and he attempted to escape uh, you know, Arabia by any which way without really any clear plan on where he wanted to go. He just understood that his life was in danger, or so he thought. Because obviously the Prophet Muhammad came to Fatah Mecca with a different prerogative, with a different ideology, 
that he was not coming to uh, execute or shame or humiliate any of those people that had opposed him. But again, it, the, 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 the culture, the tribal culture was so difficult of the time that the assumption of all of the previous leaders of Quraysh was that there was no way that the Prophet ﷺ was going to seriously let them go. So this is one lesson that we take right away, which is pretty remarkable, which is that the forgiveness of the Prophet ﷺ was something that absolutely would catch people off guard. In moments when they absolutely, definitely thought that they were going to be held to account, that they were going to have to suffer consequences, that's when the forgiveness of the Prophet ﷺ was the sweetest. Some of the most like inspiring stories are where individuals were convinced that they were not going to be given this forgiveness and the Prophet ﷺ forgave them. So Ikrama was convinced that there was no way that he was going to be able uh, to survive and so he left. Now the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ, he started to, or you want to say? I was going to say, and the reason, there's a reason for that, Ikrima had participated in every single battle against the Prophet and the Muslims. He was an active combatant in every single attack, assault on the Prophet and the Muslims. The Battle of Badr where his father Abu Jahl was finally killed, Ikrima was in that battlefield and Ikrima was fighting against the Muslims actively. Right, so there's a reason for that. Like him feeling, you know, just assuming that there's no way that I'm going to be forgiven. There's no way that I'm going to be overlooked. Right, that's, of course, obviously he was wrong in that assumption. And, you know, we're going to learn about that. But it's not just that he was coming from some unreasonable place. Like, oh, he'll never forgive me. Just, you know, like just he just had this negative assumption. No, no, no. It was rooted within a very real fact. And the fact of the matter was that I am an enemy combatant. I have led armies against the Muslims. So I am a direct threat to the well-being of Islam and the Muslims. Right? So there was a very real reason for that assumption. Yeah. So during these days after Akrama had fled, almost simultaneously at the same time, the Prophet Wasallam. Uh, you know, the, 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 the portion of Fatah Mecca took many days. It wasn't just like a, a day or a moment. And all of these people that were previously self-identified combatants of the Muslims, uh, people like Abu Sufyan and others, they had slowly started to come to the Prophet and to seek, uh, you know, basically take uh, the pledge with him, accepting Islam on his hand. So, Abu Sufyan was one of the earlier ones initially because of uh, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi uncle, their relationship. So he was brought close to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi early and almost like was the one who, you know, in his mind was part of the negotiations, right, of that moment. But the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi obviously used that opportunity to gain his trust and to show him that this was not going to be a bloodbath. After the opening, uh, or sort of as the opening was occurring, you have two individuals. Number one is you have Hind who is the wife of Abu Sufyan, radiallahu anha. Now, Hind, her history with the Prophet ﷺ is very interesting because she could, historically, it could be argued that she was one of the people that caused him the most pain in his life. There's no doubt that when Hind commissioned the assassination of Hamza, radiallahu an, that that was one of the most, uh, you know, tragic and depressing Moments in the life of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam by far. Mm. To the point where 
he wasn't just assassinated. He wasn't just murdered. He was killed, and his body was disfigured, and unspeakable things were done to him as a statement, as a, as a testament of her hatred of the Prophet Muhammad And when she meets the Prophet you know, and this is something that, again, I want all of us to, to, to number one, appreciate, that this is something very unique to the Prophet but in this presence of this ideal, we don't just simply concede and say, you know what, it's, it's, there's no point in me trying. No, there is a point in us trying, because even if you're not going to reach uh, uh, to the ideal, in your effort, you're going to get much better than if you settle for who you are, for the reality. The Prophet ﷺ, when he meets with Hind, she comes to him and she says that, I swear to you that up until even just a few days ago, there was no one in the world whose house I wanted to destroy more than yours. But now, and she's saying this to his face, but now there is no one more honorable to me than, your, than, than you, than your house. And the Prophet ﷺ does not bring up any mention of what she did to his uncle. The Prophet ﷺ does not remind her. He doesn't hold it over her head. And this is going to be a constant theme we're going to talk about today. The Prophet ﷺ does not take it upon himself to inject into any conversation with these previous enemies of Islam anything, anything at all that would infer that they had some sort of baggage or debt to pay. In fact, it will be so... It would be so beautiful to see that the Prophet ﷺ goes above and beyond. And he actually opens the door of repentance way beyond what could be imaginable. So to someone who commissioned the assassination of his uncle, who by the way wasn't just like an uncle, was close to almost like a foster brother-father figure, really. I mean when Hamza, many of us know the story of Hamza, before his Islam, I mean even in his conversion, it was out of love for the Prophet ﷺ that he converted to Islam. When he heard that some of the leaders of Quraysh were mocking, Abu Jahl specifically, were mocking the Prophet ﷺ and were you know, uh, harassing him. And then he comes back from one of his hunting trips and a woman who witnessed this, this harassment, this physical torture and harassment of the Prophet ﷺ tells Hamza your, nep- uh, uh, your nephew was being tortured and being harassed by that man Hamza takes the bow, his hunting bow, off his back and cracks Abu Jahl over the head with it and whips him over the head. This is like a a pistol whip to the point where Abu Jahl starts bleeding. It's embarrassing and humiliating. Like who knows what was more painful, the physical hit or having that done in front of all of your, your posse, your crew. And Hamza says to him that you are humiliating my family, right? You're humiliating Muhammad ibn Abdullah. Well, I accept the religion that he brought. And his conversion, really, if you look at it historically, it wasn't because he was ultimately theologically convinced, right? It began out of love for the Prophet ﷺ, which teaches us what? That even if you're not quite sure about all the nuances or whatever, if you sincerely want to get close to Allah and His Messenger, you will always find your way there. The path will always be there. So all of these people start to come. And I wanted to just mention about Hamza because I do feel like a lot of times we don't fully understand the position and the status of Hamza radiallahu anhu. And then when we read these narrations where the Prophet says, Asadullahi wa Asadu Rasulihi, and the Prophet says, Sayyidu Shuhada, right? Um, that he 
the Prophet ﷺ calls him the Lion of God and the Lion of the Messenger of God. And the Prophet ﷺ says that he is the leader of all the marchers. Like such an illustrious person. But we don't really fully understand what was the dynamic because as Ustad mentioned, he was his uncle, which is true. By blood, by lineage, he was his uncle. He was his father's younger brother. But the dynamic, he, he alluded to it, they were only two years apart. So even though technically Hamza was the Prophet's uncle, he was only two years older than him. And being two years older than him, they, they had the same nanny. They were nursed by the same nanny. And so they grew up actually more like brothers. And Hamza radiallahu ta'ala being this giant man who was known for his strength, and was like an athlete and a hunter and a wrestler. He was a big, intimidating guy. He was the closest thing the Prophet ﷺ had to a big brother. And so the Prophet entire, like especially the younger part of his life, Hamza had his arm around the Prophet's shoulders. He was his big brother. Everywhere he went, he tagged along with Hamza. You know, the little brother tagging along with the big brother. That was their dynamic. So that really gives you a sense of appreciation of what their relationship was. And then, as Ustad was saying, for someone to take that away from you. Like, imagine the pain, right? Yeah. And so, then the, the, the you know, Hind comes and takes salam with the Prophet Wasallam, and or takes, takes uh, shahada. The Prophet Wasallam says, marhaban bik. Like, mm -hmm. he's welcoming to everybody. And then you have now another individual, Ummu Hakim who was from the family of Ikrimah. And she came and she has this thought in her mind. She accepts Islam with Hind. And she says to the Prophet ﷺ that Ikrimah has left. Ikrimah has, has gone. He ran away from you. And he went all the way as far as to Yemen. Why? Because he was afraid that you were going to kill him. So, Ya Rasulullah. <laughs> this is another thing. Like you just came in and there's already requests. It's amazing, right? That, Ya Rasulullah, can you please give him some safety? Can you please grant him security? Like there's no conditions, there's no details. She just tells him one thing. This guy ran away all the way to Yemen and he's about to leave. Is there any way that I can go to him and say that he's safe? The Prophet ﷺ says, He's good. He's good. Go get him. Bring him back. So at this point, uh, Um Hakim she goes and she takes uh, with her some help and she embarks on this journey to go and recall uh, Ikrimah. And she travels all the way to go and meet with him. When she finally gets to the coast of Yemen, she goes up to him and she says to him that, I have asked Muhammad وسلم, for amnesty. I've asked him for safety from, uh, for you and he has granted it. So don't do this. Don't run away. Like who knows what kind of destruction is waiting for you if you leave. I promise you that my word is good. He's in disbelief. So he says back to her, have you spoken to him? Like is this legit or are you just, are you like speculating? She goes, no, I have actually spoken to him and he has granted amnesty towards you, to you. Uh, at this, Ikrimah then, he is semi-convinced. And she says some other things too to kind of convince him. Like, you know, I, I went through all this trouble. The person she brought with her was like a dishonest man. And so she like established, she tells him about the whole story. She basically convinces him to come back. Now, 
Ikrimah and his wife, his wife had already become Muslim. And this is a very interesting kind of wrinkle in the story. That Ikrimah, as he's journeying back to come and meet with the Prophet Sallallahu uh, you know, his wife had already accepted Islam and the the power of her tawbah, the power of her turning back to the Prophet Sallallahu and accepting Islam was so great that Ikrimah kind of is like trying to spend time with her and she's like, after you convert. After you accept the Prophet Sallallahu And I know that sounds a little bit intense and it sounds like, well, okay, you've been married to this guy, he's your husband. But... I want you to understand something very, very powerful here. And again, this is an uncomfortable conversation, but it's something that we have to talk about. Who you choose to spend your time with, whether that is a, fam a friend or family that you marry, is inevitably going to shape who you are. And the values that we need to be present in our life, you cannot make up for that in the absence of the person that you are sharing your life with. It's very difficult. And so here we have this incredibly principled stance where the wife of Ikrimah is like, you know what? Basically, uh, you know, catch me later when you are Muslim. And again, it comes off as kind of a little bit harsh, but I want you to appreciate her principle, her strength, saying that this is something that's important to me and if I'm important to you, then you need to also make this important to you. This needs to be something that we do together. Because again, we can't be joined together as a unit going in two opposite directions spiritually. Now, it doesn't mean that when a person gets married or a person has you know, relationships that they can say, okay, you know, my, my husband doesn't pray to Hajjud, I think I got to bounce. Or my wife is not fasting Mondays and Thursdays, I think, you know... Uh, you know, it's not going to work out. That's, that's not, right? Understand what she's saying. She's not holding him to a standard that's not an obligation. She's just saying, just accept Islam. You know, from there, we can work on things. But just accept Islam. I can't be with somebody who doesn't even love and believe what I love and believe. Practice is a different conversation. But let's at first, let's first get you through the door, Right? And so this is kind of like the status of where he was surrounded by. He's surrounded by now all these people in his family have become or are becoming Muslim. And you see that trickle-down effect is impacting him slowly. I was going to say about this. Um, <clears throat> a couple of days ago in the khatra that we have, the, the little reminder that we have in the, during the taraweeh prayers, um, illuminated where we talk about ay the verses of Nur, Ayatul Nur in the Qur'an. There was a verse that we talked about, And we explored the concept, the, the, the word, and I took that as an opportunity to kind of explain that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala here is talking about one of the characteristics of faith, of iman, of faithfulness, is to be loyal. Siddiq can be translated in many ways, but one of the elements of being a true Siddiq is to be loyal. And I had somebody ask me afterwards that, what does that practically look like? Like in a very practical sense, that loyalty to the Prophet And it just right now hit me that, you know, what she is doing here is that loyalty to align his messenger, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. 
that she's doing something very difficult and challenging. Probably something that she doesn't want to do. Like she wouldn't want this to be her situation. But she's willing to do it if that's what the outcome is. That if the outcome is that you renounce Allah's Messenger you refuse Allah's Messenger right? you just disbelieve, reject Allah's Messenger then you and I, we're not on the same page because our loyalties are different. Right? To be that loyal to Allah, that's so powerful on her part. So when she does this, he says, you know, this is again the, the power of a good relationship, actually. He doesn't just like cut her off. He actually says, it's actually really funny because in Arabic he's like, you have, uh, you know, um, like this is a big deal, <laughs> you know, like you like separating from me, like I can't handle that, you know. Again, you see, subhanAllah, like the, the intricate relationship, Hamza's conversion wasn't purely theological. And now you see Akrama, like again, his wife is engaging every aspect of their relationship to show him like this is serious. Amr only really starts to think about it when he gets punched. Like not everyone's going to have like the intellectual light bulb moment of Islam. I'm not saying to go punch people and I'm not saying to like cut people off and I'm not saying to, you know, but what I am saying is we have to allow for a multitude of pathways into the religion. We can't do purity tests on people's faith, you know, and, I, and I'll be, I'll be vulnerable for a minute. Like my father's a convert. Many people, I grew up hearing that my dad converted to marry my mom. That wasn't the case, but I heard this as a child of a convert, right? And I think that before I used to even be kind of like, no, no, no. And now I'm like, who cares? If that was the way in for somebody, alhamdulillah. And you know what? Like many of us ended up through doorsteps and, and, and positions in life that we didn't intend and it was the greatest blessing of our life. And so realizing now that all these stories of repentance, they all factor in very interesting moments of human vulnerability of human conversation, you know, even physical altercation that woke up the heart, that shook the rust off the heart. Think about it. Sometimes the heart is so rusted, it can't appreciate the, 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 the pure light of Islam. Something has to happen. How many of us came back to Allah after losing a job or losing health or having a near-death experience or a tragedy that just shook us out of that? Would, would, would anyone dare say that your Islam is insincere? No. In fact, it would be the opposite. A person took something that happened to them in life and they did the best thing possible with it. So here, you know, Akrama is showing us that not everyone's path to Islam is going to be the same. Sometimes it's going to have to come from, you know, a cousin or even a wife saying, listen, like we're not cool until you rethink this. And so he rethinks it. And he comes back to the Prophet ﷺ. And the Prophet ﷺ, as he sees, you know, Ikrimah, of course, there's obviously conversation. Because again, this is not just some random guy. This is the son of Abu Jahl. This is the son. You know when Bilal 
first made adhan on top of the Kaaba. The Prophet ﷺ, again, he had a beautiful, a beautiful way of flipping over societal problems on their head. Oh, you're a racist society? Bilal, why don't you go to the top of the Kaaba and call the adhan? Let all these guys just bathe in this. These people who thought that you were insignificant, I want them to see you on top of the Kaaba calling the adhan. Ikrama was the one who said, what? I'm happy my dad is dead. Because he wouldn't be able to handle this. Can you imagine? Now that guy is coming back. This guy who fought in all the battles against the Prophet the son of Abu Jahl, when he hears the adhan on top of the Kaaba from Bilal, he goes, thank, good, thank goodness, not thank God. Thank God's joke, you get it? <laughs> thank goodness that my dad is dead because I, do, I wouldn't want him to see this. Now he's coming. What does the Prophet say? He sees him coming. The Prophet doesn't go, look who came crawling back. They didn't have any Hanid in Yemen. They didn't have any Fahsa. Why are you back? You know what he says? He, imagine someone walking in right now. Like I see them coming in. They can't hear me, but you guys can. He says, no one better mention his dad. Don't say the name Abu Jahl. I don't even want you to say Ikrama bin Abi Jahl. Just say Ikrama. Why? Because if you curse his father, cursing the dead doesn't reach them and it only hurts the living. <laughs> I mean, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And and what creates what, what allows us to appreciate this moment is the day Abu Jahl was killed in battle fighting against the Muslims, the Battle of Badr. When, the, the, when Abdullah bin Masood came to the Prophet and confirmed, Abu Jahal is dead. The Prophet sent Abdullah bin Masood, go make sure he's dead. And when he came back and he said, Ya Rasulullah, I'm here to confirm that he is in fact dead. The Prophet at that moment, he said, halaka ummati. You know the story of Moses, the story of Musa, the Pharaoh, Fir'aun, the Prophet said, Abu Jahl was Pharaoh for my people. Abu Jahl was the Pharaoh of my people. Like the torment of Abu Jahl on the Muslims is equivalent to that of the Pharaoh. SubhanAllah, right? Having said that, that's the record. That's the record, okay? And now for the Prophet to say what he just said, don't bring him up. Don't bring him up. There's no point. There's no benefit. Because right now, what we have is, we have a soul at stake. We need to save this soul. He needs to become our brother. And this is only going to push him away. It won't bring him closer. So therefore, it's counterintuitive. Right? It's counterproductive. So don't do this. So then, the Prophet ﷺ, he says that, well, the, the narration says, the Prophet ﷺ saw Ikrama, وَثَبَ إِلَيْهِ وَمَا عَلَى النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ وَسَلَّمَ رِدَاءٌ فَرَحًا بِإِكْرَمَةٍ That he became extremely happy for the Prophet uh, to see Ikrama. Like he didn't just, again, he didn't just sort of say like, hey, come on in. You know, sit down. He got up as if he was greeting like his old friend. Right? He stood up and greeted him enthusiastically. Why? Because... When someone comes to own up to something and you want to be forgiving, you have to be gracious in your forgiveness. 
you can't be, you can't, you can't, you know, this is the, the same concept as, you know, فَصَبْرٌ Jamil. This idea Ya'qub is being patient. There's a way you can be patient. It's like an ugly patience. Right? Uh, and then there's a way you can be patient that is beautiful. How do the scholars define Sabrun Jamid? They say you're patient in a way that nobody knows that you have to be, you, that you're trying. Like you're sitting there and you're waiting for something, and everyone else is getting irritated because we're all waiting together. But they look at you and, and you're just like, yeah, this is, this is fine. I'm cool. Not sarcastically. Yeah, this is fine. Right? Genuinely, people cannot tell that you're forcing yourself. So the Prophet sees this guy coming in, knows that there's going to be a lot of insecurities, knows that there's a lot of baggage, right? And what does he do? He gets up and greets him like it's Abu Bakr as-Siddiq. Like hugs him, says to him, come, come. ثُمَّ جَلَسَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ comes right in front of him. Sits so close to the Prophet Again, why? If you don't feel comfortable, if someone's got baggage, you got beef, what do you do? You say, sit right there, right? Sit on the opposite side of the table. No, the Prophet says, come right here. Sits him down right between his hands. And with him is his wife. First thing he says to the Prophet is, I bear witness that there's nothing worthy of worship besides Allah and that you are, Muhammad is the messenger and servant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then he says, The Prophet became extremely, extremely happy with this. And he became he overjoyed by this acceptance. And then Akrama he asks the Prophet, he says, Ya Rasulullah, uh, please make dua for me and make dua that Allah forgives me for all the things that I ever said about you in your presence or in your absence. And Akrama, the Prophet makes dua in front of him and he asks Allah Ta'ala to forgive him. And of course, uh, you know, the Prophet's dua we know is accepted. And then Akrama says to the Prophet, Ya Rasulullah, I'm 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 content. Like I'm I'm so happy right now. Like we find I, I got a fresh start. Like this is what I needed, right? To come back to you, to hear you make those dua for me, not against me. Arikrama now is totally convinced that he's one of the guys, that he's now in the crew. And he says to the Prophet ﷺ, like, Ya Rasulullah, I'm content. And he, you know, it, it displays his pleasure. And he, after that, it's mentioned in some of the narrations even, that he dedicated his total, like, effort and energy. You know, he didn't, he didn't treat this like a retirement. Like I, I was the most uh, staunch and energetic and powerful enemy, and now that I'm Muslim, I'm gonna be like, you know, uh, we're, we're not gonna t tolerate any Carmelo hatred, but I'm gonna be like Ben Wallace. For those of you who know, you know. I'm just gonna chill. Bulls, man. Yeah, not, not Pistons Ben Wallace. There's different people. Meaning what? He didn't just say, okay, I'm Muslim, now I'm good. Let's let the young guys fight. No, he said, I was the staunchest against you, I'm going to be the staunchest for you. I'm going to outdo old Akrama with new Akrama. And yeah, the hadith yeah. says that he... The narrations mentioned that he took it as a vow. Yeah. He like took an oath. He like took, made a vow. Saying every single penny that I spent against Islam, I will spend more than that for Islam. Mm -hmm. 
every single minute I spent resisting Islam, I would dedicate more energy for Islam mm. until until he says until I am killed. And like, he was shaheed in the Battle of Yarmouk. Yeah. When the Muslims were fighting the Byzantine Empire, the Romans, Ikrima participated in that battle, fought valiantly in the battlefield for Islam until he was killed in battle. And so he died a shaheed. He died a shaheed for Islam. So the some of the points that I think are, are relevant, I know we made a few along the way. The one that I, I think that hits me the, the most there's two. Number one is that the Prophet Sallallahu uh, almost like I said, went out of his way in a way that just doesn't seem human to, to welcome back with such graciousness somebody that had wronged him more than I think we can fathom. And in that, the Prophet Sallallahu taught not only the immediate companions around him, but he taught everybody that we are nobody to not forgive somebody if Allah has forgiven them. We are no one. Can you imagine on the Day of Judgment <laughs> that Allah has announced he's forgiven somebody and you're standing on the opposite side saying you still have beef with them? This is what the Prophet ﷺ is teaching us. If somebody sincerely comes back to Allah, you also have to let it go. You have to. And what does it let it go mean? My daughter's three, so I'm already thinking about Elsa. What does let it go mean? Let it go doesn't mean that you're like best friends. Let it go means on the day of judgment, I'm not going to say anything. Right? Like I, I tell people, if someone steals your wallet, forgiving them doesn't mean that you have to leave your wallet with them again. Right? You're allowed to adapt your behavior to protect your mental, your physical, whatever well-being. You're allowed to do that. What it means is that on the Day of Judgment, there's not going to be, oh, Allah, punish them for that. Right? So when, when we are told to forgive, remember, forgiveness is a long play. It's not a short play. And even though the Prophet ﷺ had the ability to engage and acknowledge and bring in these people, of course, he's unique, he's special. I said, I'm the most special. There might be situations where you've been oppressed, you've been wronged, and it might actually be detrimental to you to re-engage with certain folks in the way that you used to. That's fine. It's part of life. And maybe one day there will be a level of healing, there will be a level of strength that you'll be able to become a stronger version of yourself and be able to look past that. Again, not for them, but for you. But that's not a promise you have to make to anybody. What we do have to do is that as believers and as fellows of the Ummah, we have to say, oh Allah, on the Day of Judgment, I don't hold anything against this person. That's forgiveness. And that is something that we are commanded to do in the Quran. That is what the Prophet ﷺ commands us to do and demonstrates time and time again. The grudge is just not worth it. It's not. And you see this, if the Prophet ﷺ can forgive Akrama, I don't think anyone in this room has anybody at the status of Ikrama in the life of the Prophet ﷺ in their life. And if you think you do, I don't think you understand who he was. Mm -hmm. The second lesson, then I'll let Shaykh finish, inshallah, for us, is that Tawbah takes courage. Like repentance is a daunting act.
It's not easy. And tawbah requires a few things. One of them being, especially if you wrong somebody, that you have to acknowledge it. You have to. The scholars say there's very few concessions for this. The only concession is that if acknowledging it is going to make the situation worse, then just be quiet. But you have to acknowledge if you've wronged somebody. You have to say sorry. Many people, oh, what if they don't forgive me? That's not in your hands. All that is in your hands is to go and try to make things right. Whether or not that person takes that, gives it back to you, whatever. That's up to them. But on the day of judgment, you want to be able to say, oh Allah, I did my part. I sought their forgiveness. I did the salam dua. I did their Eid Mubaraks. I did the Ramadan Kareems. I did all of that. And oh Allah, I want you to know, oh Allah, that I did not hold anything against this person. Right? And I sought their forgiveness. Erkalimah comes to the Prophet and he has to face his greatest fear in order to get this status. But look at the view from the top. Right? After climbing that mountain of fear with his courage, look at the view from the top. He's ecstatic. He's overjoyed. The Prophet ﷺ prays for him by name, gives him this new life. He was on a boat off the coast of Yemen, about to go nowhere. And last minute, his family comes and saves him. He comes back to the Prophet ﷺ, 2448, 72 hours later, who knows? And now he's a completely changed person. Now he's to the point where we talk about him during Ramadan. We name our kids after him. We say radiallahu an after his name. What a transformation. It takes courage, but you can do it too. We ask Allah Ta'ala to give us that courage. Shaykh. There's a companion, kind of a childhood friend of Ikrima. Very similar kind of story, but again, you know, the gesture, right? Because... To understand that, you know, we and we alluded to this in one of the earlier sessions, that if you want the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then you have to learn to practice mercy. And the implication of that statement is that if you are one of those people, that if I, if I'm going to be the kind of person who says, well, you know what? Fair is fair. Just is just. Right is right, wrong is wrong. You made your bed, now lie in it. You got to face the consequences of your actions. Do you understand the implication of that? Do you understand the implication of that? Then am I basically also then willing to accept that for myself before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Right? Can I not then also be told? Right is right, wrong is wrong. If you got more good deeds than bad deeds, sure, you can go to paradise. Right? That, but if you have more sins than good deeds, if you have more wrong than right, if you have more bad than good, then should you, am I willing, should I be then told, am I okay with being told, you ruined yourself. Now go to hell. The Quran describes it in scary, 
graphic detail. Talks about the face of the person melting off before they even get to the fire from the heat emanating from the fire. Right? So there's a very serious question here. Right? That I can say, nope, I'm going to operate based off of just fairness. Then I have to be willing to accept that same arrangement for myself, for my soul. But if that's not that's not something I want to deal with, that's not something I want to face, I want mercy, I want forgiveness, I want kindness, I want benevolence, I want the benefit of the Tao, then I best learn to extend that as well. And do you understand how powerful mercy and forgiveness is? There's a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ that says that on the day of judgment, because you know, وَخُلِقَ الْإِنسَانُ عَجُولًا إِنَّ الْإِنسَانُ خُلِقَ هَلُوعًا إِذَا مَسَّهُ الشَّرُّ جَزُوعًا وَإِذَا مَسَّهُ الْخَيْرُ مَنُوعًا ظَلُومًا جَهُولًا Like Allah tells us in the Quran that the human being is a very, you know, uh, petty creature. The human being left to his or her own vices is a very petty creature. So, on the day of judgment, in that kind of just animalistic kind of panic that a lot of the human beings will experience, right? اقترب للناس حسابهم وهم في غفلة معرضون Right? That when they, when they experience that, they're going to resort to a very lowly kind of behavior. Nafsi, nafsi. Right? They're not going to care about anyone. يَوْمَ يَفِرُّ الْمَرْءُ مِنْ أَخِيهِ A person will run from his brother. وَأُمِّهِ وَأَبِيهِ He'll run from his mother and his father. وَصَاحِبَتِهِ وَبَنِيهِ He'll run from his own wife. He'll run from his own children. لِكُلِّ مْرِئِمْ مِنْهُمْ يَوْمَ إِذِنْ شَأْنٌ يُغْنِيهِ Everyone's going to be worried about themselves. So there will be someone, okay, like imagine... I did something wrong to him. And so, at that moment, he'll have the opportunity to hold me accountable for that. He'll be given the opportunity, hey, take your justice from him. And he will, because he was someone, if he was someone, who practiced that kind of forgiveness and mercy and compassion in the life of the world, then on that day of judgment, that's what he'll be resurrected with. And so what he will do, he'll say, it's okay. I forgive him. What am I going to get from trying to bury him now? We're all just trying to survive. We're all just vying for salvation. And Allah will say to him, the Prophet tells us, Allah will say to him, is there someone who's trying to show me up? There's someone here who thinks he's more merciful than I am? That Allah is holding people accountable, Allah is weighing the deeds of the people, and this guy here says, eh, I forgive him. Allah will say, no, 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 no. Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. 
No, you got this all wrong. Nobody outdoes me in mercy and forgiveness. And Allah, as a result of that, will forgive me and forgive him. You think you can be more merciful than me? No, no, no. See, mercy begets mercy. Ar-Rahmatu tajlibur rahmah. Right? It, it calls the mercy of Allah. And so that's what we need to focus on. That's what you know, we're trying to achieve and realize. And these nights, you know, while we're fasting during the day, kind of you know, weakening the beast, the animal that lives inside, that feeds. You know, now 25 days of being on a leash, that, that beast is whimpering. You understand? That animal inside is very weak, subdued. He's been tamed. And we're here in these nights, listening to the Qur'an, sitting in the house of Allah, making dua, putting our face on the ground, asking Allah for His mercy. So while we do that, and that's a beautiful, beautiful, it's a beautiful thing to do, it's a beautiful exercise, spiritual exercise, but we need to kind of tap what's inside. That sujood cannot just be, you know, our face on the ground. Imam Ghazali, rahimahullah ta'ala, he says, that's the goal of worship. When you start worshiping, your head is above your heart. And then when you go into ruku'ah, your head and your heart are at the same level. Now you're starting to achieve some equilibrium, some spiritual balance. By the time you end up in sujood, your heart is higher than your head. And so it needs to penetrate inside and we need to actually change. Right? People are always talking about keeping the Ramadan, keeping Ramadan going. Again, good thing, great thing. Right, your regimen of prayer, fasting, regularly reading a juz of the Qur'an, that's fantastic. That's amazing. But the real thing is to keep the spirit of Ramadan alive. And that we have to achieve these internal changes. I will be a more forgiving and merciful person. I will be closer to the character of the Prophet I will be more patient and more gracious and more kind and more generous. I will be more loving and more forgiving and all of those things. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us the tawfiq and the ability uh, to achieve change here in these blessed nights. Barakallahu feekum. Jazakumullah khairan. Again, inshallah, please you know, keep coming through. We have uh, the nightly program here every night starting at midnight with these reflections. And then as we concluded now, inshallah, in just about... Uh, four or five minutes we're going to be starting some Qiyam prayer so everyone can stand up and pray together and listen to some Qur'an inshallah together um, and uh, just a kind of a note about some of the you know special programs that are coming up as we approach the end of the month of Ramadan is that um, Wednesday uh, night uh, where Salat al-Isha is at 9.30 after that we have Salat al-Taraweeh and we're going to be completing the recitation of the Qur'an in Salat al-Taraweeh. And we'll have a very special dua there that day, insha'Allah, the dua at the occasion of the completion of the Qur'an. So we request you to join us, insha'Allah. 
Um, and then, obviously, we'll have Friday khutbah. It'll be the last Jumu'ah of the month of Ramadan, inshallah. We have that here at 2 p.m. on Friday. And then Friday night, uh, inshallah, is the big annual Qiyam program that we do where we have all the different teachers and instructors and scholars from Qalam sharing reflections um, and having discussions. So inshallah, we put that on your calendar as well. And we're going to be announcing these things as we kind of get along because I don't want to announce so many things at the same time. But I had a, f a handful of people ask me yesterday and today. So just a little bit of a heads up that we do inshallah plan to do uh, Salat al-Eid here uh, at the masjid, at the campus, inshallah. At 11.30 a.m. <laughs> with Dhuhr Salah. Inshallah. We're going <laughs> to combine Eid with Salat al-Dhuhr. So, no, but we do plan to have, you know, Salat al-Eid and some festivities here for Eid, uh, for the whole family to be able to enjoy, inshallah, for everyone to come and join us, brothers and sisters. Uh, so just kind of keep those things in mind. We'll be announcing them as we get closer. But for now, just mark the date, uh, the day after tomorrow, Wednesday, inshallah. Um, I don't know if this is the day after tomorrow. I don't know why I said that. Wednesday at 9.30 p.m., inshallah, come join us for the completion of the Quran. Assalamu alaikum wa